welcome back to another episode of the Your Polygamy Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay. Today, I want to dive deep into a topic that I've covered many times before on this podcast, but I haven't really delved into specifics. The history of abortions in Mormonism. And I know I've done some podcasts on this before, but we've been talking about sort of the ethics and the politics around it, but not really the history. And honestly, listeners out there, this subject deserves an entire episode dedicated to the subject because this really is a hidden history right below the surface. And I don't think it would take that long to excavate it. There is like so much to be discovered still. All you need to do is go to the archives and start searching for herbs like blue cohash and squavines, tansy, catnip, thyme, horse mint, rue, penny royal, cedar berries. Search for tinctures and confinement and pessary, and you'll be surprised how the history of abortion in Mormonism surfaces in plain sight. Because as we'll discuss here today, abortions have always, 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 always existed in every culture and climate. Um, it's in every community. It's a constant. It's existed everywhere. And if that idea is something that you don't really believe in, well, this podcast is for you. And if this idea is uncomfortable for you, this episode is for you. Facing uncomfortable truths like this is the mark of courage and one that I'm inviting all my listeners into today. And if you're already, you know, um, in agreement and alignment politically with uh, this history, then great. Hopefully you're going to learn something new. I surely did. But there are a lot of so-called pro-lifers in this community. Um, Mormonism contains Latter-day Saints and fundamentalists, conservatives and liberals who are all against abortion. And I say so-called pro-life because I, I don't know. I really resent the labels, uh, the the propaganda that have become attached to the subject and which have been, you know, happening for about 100 years. Now, the history is a lot messier than the memes and the labels and the YouTube scare tactics and the picket signs. Again, I've said this many times on this podcast, you know someone who's had an abortion, probably one of your ancestors from Mormon history. So we're going to dig into all of that today. But most often the topic of abortion rises in relationship to Joseph Smith and his plural wives. And the reason why it comes up is because people are trying to understand if it's true, if Joseph Smith was such a prolific womanizer, then, you know, if he had all these multiple sexual affairs with a variety of women, why then does he not have more progeny? And so the, the discussion in Mormonism comes up, well, maybe Joseph Smith had access to abortion. Maybe he was getting some of his plural wife's abortions. His good buddy up there in Nauvoo was John C. Bennett, uh, a noted abortionist who sometimes gave abortions or referred women for abortions. So that's really kind of how we talk about it. And that's an important part of the history. So we're going to go into it a little bit, but there's so much more than that. I want to give us all a little bit more in-depth treatment, and that's why I've invited Dr. Amanda Hendricks-Komodo, who is an excellent scholar, researcher, and historian, and she's an expert on the topic. And I'm going to have her discuss the history of uh, abortions in the text, so that's coming up. But before I get into my absolutely incredible interview with her, I want to go over a basic timeline of some things to consider, some like background on Mormon medicine that we might not always think about. Like I said, this topic needs a lot more study, especially since it's really only used right now. The discussion is really only used to prove if Joseph Smith had sex or not with his plural wives. 
But the impact is so much more broader than than Joseph Smith's relationships, and it deserves so, uh, just a bigger treatment. But let's get into it. Uh, the history of doctors first, and I'm going to throw in a bunch of links because there's just so much good reading already out there on this subject, and I've really become well acquainted with reading dissertations. So if you uh, wrote a dissertation out there on Mormon history, I'm going to probably come across it someday. I find so much good stuff there and they don't get the, I don't know, the, the eyes on it that they deserve. So we've got a good one. And this one was written some time ago. It's entitled Pioneering Physicians in Utah, 1847 to 1900 by Christine Croft Waters. And I'm going to link to it because ah, there's just so much good stuff in there. So much good stuff. You know, especially an older dissertation like this one, I, I'll go in and sort of check their work sometimes to see if they've been updated. And ah, she just got so much good, uh, solid archival stuff here. So she starts out with a really great history. And I'm going to quote heavily uh, from it because she goes into basically the access that Mormons would have had to doctors in the time, just generally. And this is something that interests me. You know, we know that Joseph Smith's counselor, Willard Richards, was a doctor. I like to poke fun of him over on the (laughs) Sons of Mormon History podcast. Joseph Smith was surrounded by doctors, but he had a suspicion about doctors too. And this was pretty common, you know, like I was just talking to my mom about this the other day and she said, you know, Lindsay, like my grandmother's age, my so my great grandmother, there was such a suspicion about hospitals. Hospitals are where you went to die. You didn't go there for treatment. You went to your local friend or someone you knew. You took herbs. You handled things yourself. You're, you, you went to your mother's medicine cabinet and that's what you did. I think that that was a common frontier thing. But I also think that there was a suspicion with doctors. I mean, we know from the Sunstone Mormon History podcast, we just you know did this whole thing on the Mormon Battalion. And there's this idea of Civil War doctors who would give cam- uh, I always want to say chamomile calomel to to cure everything and calomel could poison you and kill you and it often did and so doctors were sometimes seen as unscrupulous because they didn't have a lot of good treatment and of course joseph smith had a complicated relationship with medical practitioners throughout his life and so he said in the 1840s uh, this quote quote that the doctors in this region so he's talking about navio the doctors in this region don't know much they won't tell you where to go to be well they want to kill or cure you or cure you to get money He said that regular doctors will, quote, give you calomel to cure a sliver in your big toe and they do not stop to know whether the stomach is empty or not. And calomel on an empty stomach will kill a patient and the Lobelia doctors, which are Thomasonian, will do the same. So he advised um, self-treatment instead. He said, quote, take some mild psychic two or three times and follow up with some good bitters. If you cannot get anything else, take a little salts and cayenne pepper. If you get salts take Ipecac or use Bonacet or Whorehound. So right there, straight from the prophet's lips, there's his medical prescription. So now I'm going to read from Waters, uh, her dissertation, because she talks about doctors. And I think this is important. She says, quote, the Latter-day Saints throughout their early existence were beset with all manners of physicians, each claiming to have the power to cure. First, there were the regular physicians who were trained in medical schools or licensed to practice throughout apprenticeship under a practicing physician. When the saints were centered in Ohio between 1831 and 1833, two regular medical colleges existed in Ohio, both in Cincinnati. The Medical College of Ohio was founded in 1820, and the Miami University Medical Department was founded in 1830. Though these two colleges were unstable because of rivalry between faculty members, they both dispersed a number of doctors throughout Ohio, undoubtedly a number of whom sought to practice among the Latter-day Saints. 
The Saints began the settlement of Missouri in 1831, and when they were forced from Ohio in 1833, moved to Missouri in great numbers. No medical schools existed in Missouri during their eight, their eight years eight year stay there. However, when they were again driven from their homes and located in Illinois, three Illinois medical schools, Franklin Medical College, the Medical Department of Illinois College, and Rush Medical College, undoubtedly influenced medical practices in Nauvoo. Of the 15 men and one woman in Nauvoo who advertised themselves as physicians during the time of the Mormon settlement there, 10 are thought to have been Orthodox physicians. Of these 10, three were Mormons, John Milton Bernheisel, and was graduated from the University of Pennsylvania and lived for a time in the home of Joseph Smith. He was a respected member of the Mormon community who acted as an intermediary between the Mormon church and the government of the United States. John C. Bennett, we remember him, received his license to practice medicine through his physician under Dr. Bennett, was mayor of Nauvoo, and before he was excommunicated from the church, was a counselor to Joseph Smith. The third LDS physician, Samuel Bennett, served on the Nauvoo Board of Health with Joseph Smith. Other Orthodox physicians in Nauvoo, for whom little uh, information is available, were J.F. Weld, who did surgery and obstetrics, Charles Higby, who did diseases of women and children, Harvey Tate, who did medicine and surgery, James H. Haven, Lennox H. Knight, H.G. Goforth, and Dr. Braley. And so those are just some of the doctors. And then we, you know, of course, there's more. So she names these doctors. So I want you to think about this. Uh, we think about these pioneers like no one had medical knowledge. No one knew science. No one understood anything. And so when we talk about women's health care, we just think, oh, you know, like my mom was talking about my grandmothers. Everyone was kind of on their own. And you were, but you also weren't. You had people to give you these herbs, to give you counsel, uh, to give you things that you didn't have access to. And in Nauvoo, as we can see, there are many who are close to Joseph Smith at the time. And even though Joseph Smith was skeptical about outside doctors and he started out skeptical of Thomasonian medicine, it didn't take him very long at all to come around to that. Um, even though it's interesting because Thomasonian doctors used plants and herbs, which is what Lucy Mack would have done. She was an herbalist. Um, and of course, we know Joseph Smith was probably experimenting with those two based on his medical advice he was giving other people. And these herbs that we're talking about that they would have been gathering were used heavily in women's reprodu reproductive health. And, you know, by the end of his life, Joseph Smith was way more open to Thomasonian medicine. Water says, quote, at least four Thomasonian doctors exercised influence in Nauvoo. Frederick G. Williams was not only a licensed Thomasonian, but also the second counselor to Joseph Smith. Levi and Willard Richards both enjoyed close association with Smith, Levi as his physician and Willard as a member of the Council of Twelve Apostles. On April 19, 1843, Joseph Smith noted in his journal that, quote, Levi Richards is one of the best physicians anyone has ever acquainted with. The same year, on December 15th, Smith's journal reported that he was quote, seized with dryness of mouth and throat, sickness of stomach, and vomited freely. My wife waited on me, assisted by my scribe, Dr. Willard Richards, and his brother Levi, who administered to me herb and mild drinks. Margaret Cooper was also a licensed Thomasonian who practiced medicine in Nauvoo from 1842 until the Exodus in 1846. Besides warning the saints against physicians, orthodox or otherwise, Joseph Smith also advised the people on other health matters. He told them that the lower part of Nauvoo was the most healthy location in the city and that the Mississippi River hater, 
healthful to drink than spring water, a 15 to 20 foot well was dug. Smith also formed the Board of Health in Nauvoo on February 11, 1843, with himself, William Law, William Marks, and Dr. Samuel Bennett as members. And little is known of the activities of this board, but it was one of the earliest boards of health to exist in the entire United States. And also in January 1843, quote, the laws and ordinances of the city of Nauvoo contained an ordinance forbidding citizens to leave garbage uncovered or sitting stagnant in the city. Okay, so I include all of this because I was reading this and got really curious about this. If there were so many doctors, you know, how much study has been done to their journals, to their writings, to their their practices? I got really excited and curious about how hard it would be to find examples of Thomasonian doctors or botanists or orthodox doctors advertising abortive practices. So I decided to start digging through their stuff. And it turns out it was really easy. Um, But to do this, you have to understand what you're looking for. So you can start with some of these doctors. Turns out Waters' list is not comprehensive. There were plenty of other doctors as well in Nauvoo at the time associating with Joseph Smith and his plural wives. And I'm going to put the link in the show notes, but there have been herbs that have been known to help work as contraceptives and abortives for thousands of years. Written history has given us examples back to ancient Greece, Rome, other cultures. You can look that up and some of the stuff I'm posting will direct you to those. But for the sake of this episode, we'll go back as far as 17th century and sort of work our way forward. So you can find stuff, plenty of stuff in the 17th century, even from women, surprisingly. There are, for example, two medical almanacs from the 17th century England where there are two female uh, physicians, authors who um, ran their own almanacs, Sarah Jenner and Mary Holden. And in their almanacs, they detail cures for all kinds of things, uh, mostly women's reproductive ills. And Jenner has this almanac that gives recipes for abortions and some that go back to ancient times and those of Galen and Hippocrates, who lists, you know, 1200 plants in his work and 44 of them having uses that helped gynecological um problems and issues, including abortion. And in it, he lists a, a lot of roots and plants. So... If you're researching, you can go back through these doctors that I named and look for these roots like I did. I'm going to link to you. There's a whole list of herbs and roots to avoid during pregnancy. Um, And these are things that have been known for a very, very long time. Um, So yarrow root is one, black cohash, babosa, ladies mantle, angelica, uh, Roman chamomile, wormwood, sacred bark, uh, blue cohash, squaw root, cassia, del centenio, true cinnamon, cabeza de negro, hinojo, hops, golden seal, juniper berry, menta de lobo, German chamomile, penny royale, tobacco, albacar, oregano, passionflower, bolho, cava cava, buckhorn, rhubarb, rosemary, ruda, comfrey, and on and on and on. So a as we're going to talk about, you know, these are these are people that live in a very agrarian age. They're around animals that are um, having sex and having offspring and that uh, people were very interested in that because it led to their survival. If your cattle had more cattle, then you you had more money and you had more food to eat. So they were very interested in this. They knew what these herbs did. So when you're looking in the archives, know what you're looking for. And we know that early Americans were introduced to a lot of these herbs in the Americas by indigenous neighbors. For example, in 
going back to the 17th century, Cherokee introduced herbs like golden seal and blue cohash as contraceptives. The Cherokee were using it. So yes, it's weird to think about because we like to think about abortions as a scientific thing that we've somehow discovered since the women's movement in the 1970s. But indigenous communities have been using these herbs for this stuff for a millennia. And if we want to go into, you know, another interesting history of abortions in the 18th and 19th century, look into the history of how enslaved women were using this. It's a dark history. I, you know, did a lot of research on that this week, and it was really horrifying to to see sometimes, you know, um, how some of these abortives were used as torture for enslaved people to punish them if they were sick for working, for example. Um, I'm sorry if this is upsetting, but it it's um, just true. So we know that castor oil, castor oil is given to women to induce labor. It's also a diuretic and they would give it to enslaved people. Sometimes in the Congo I was reading about when a man would show up sick to work, they would just you know, punish him for being sick by giving him large and almost fatal amounts of this oil to make him sick. And that was being forced on enslaved women too. Uh, they had no they had they had very little control over their reproductive health health. And when they did, uh, like, you know, when they were often uh, sexually assaulted, raped and became pregnant, it would have been a very painful thing because they wouldn't have had control over that pregnancy or the, you know, the child's life. And so some of them took care of this in secret. And sometimes they were forced by, you know, their enslavers to, to take these things. But that that history gives us an incredible insight into the history of abortions. And I'm going to link to some more articles here. There's a really well-written article that was written by three female scholars, Cheryl Lands, Lisa Taylor Swanson, and Rachel Westfall. And here's what they say, quote, household slaves served as informal medical practitioners in some homes. Granny midwives attended childbirth on some slave plantations as a cost-saving measure for the owners, but sometimes acted as abortionists and record the plants or plant-based products used by slaves to abort, and several are discussed in this paper. Tansy, catnip, thyme, horsemint, rue, pennyroyal, cedar berries, oregano, vulgari, thuja, occidentalis, oil of savin, leaves of germ Juniperus virginia, sorry, I don't know a Latin, fruit of Juniperus communis, Simcafuga rashmosus, and a bunch of other ones I can't, I can't pronounce. I'm not going to even try. Um, They were told by, uh, one scholar in 1870 was told by several parties that planters forced their slaves to drink an infusion of a tonic daily whilst pregnant, and the tonic maintained their pregnancies, even though they used cotton root to try and abort their pregnancies. And a physician from Texas reported that he had observed this anti-abortive use of plant for 15 years, and he had prescribed it in many cases without failure. And then they go into some of what these plants do. For example, root the I've said the herb rue r u e ruta gravel lens enslaved people used rue to abort and it was used for suppressed menses either alone or in combination with tansy savin and penny royale some reports of of rue being used for abortions fall into the category quote her bereaved relatives rued the day she ever used that plant r u e the mouse trial conducted in 2005 by Defrita suggests that rue had little or no effects in early pregnancy, but there were negative effects in later stages of pregnancy. So these are just some of the herbs. Like I said, there's a whole list of stuff used 
not only as abortives, but definitely as abortives, but also as contraceptives. And Amanda's going to talk to you about why that is, because contraception and abortion is really fuzzy in this time because they didn't look at the political landscape of when the fetus, you know, becomes alive or has a spirit or a soul or whatever we want to talk about now. It was it just wasn't understood that way. But aside from herbs, there were so much more. You know, I I just did a Mormon Stories interview and I, I was saying something that I feel, which is we treat women back in this time period like they were idiots, like they didn't know how to take care of their bodies. There have been contraceptives since human beings figured out how babies were born. And um, in you know, Joseph Smith's time and Brigham Young's time, they had technologies like pessiaries. Um, occlusive pessiaries were used for contraception. And they're kind of known as a contraceptive cap now. And they work similarly to a diaphragm that we would understand. So they're like a barrier to con- um, to conception. And pessiaries can take many forms and they're usually inserted into the vagina to block sperm from entering the uterus through the cervix. And in the 1700s, doctors were advertising using cork or hollowed out wood with tree gum implanted inside um, as a pessary to prevent pregnancy. And if they were married, sometimes they would put a ring pessary, usually made out of metal. And sometimes that helped with other issues too, like it it helped if you had a prolapsed uterus, if you had a leaky bladder, all of these kinds of things. But most commonly, these things were used as contraceptives. And you can find mentions of these in Pioneer journals. So of course, you know, I Google pessary in the archives and I find one wife in the 1880s who was writing to her husband saying, how uncomfortable her pessary was. She hated it. There are other forms of contraceptives too, many forms, because they didn't have the birth control pill like we have now. They had all kinds of ways that they got creative with this. You know, the occlusive pessary, which I was talking about, which was this device that you inserted, sort of develops into other things too. There was a common one called the womb veil. And think of it again as an early diaphragm. It was likely invented in the 19, in the 1830s and actively marketed for decades. But by 1863, Edward Bliss Foot designed and marketed one commercially and called it the womb veil. So that's like where that buzzword comes from. And that became the most popular term for it. It's very like 19th century Victorian euphemism, right? The womb veil. We don't want to say what it was. And you could order these through catalogs, especially after the 1870s when induced abortions start to become criminalized and folks wanted to prevent getting pregnant. So then they become really popular. And then, of course, we have condoms, which you could use all sorts of things for. The lining of farm animal stomachs like sheep and pig were quite popular and easy to come by. And then when Charles Goodyear develops vulcanized rubber, when he was like stealing rubber from Congo, that allows other barrier contraceptives like female protectors and the French pessary and uh, female condoms and the diaphragm and all of these things. Anyway, there, there are so so many ways that uh, early Mormons were planning their families. They weren't just like, oh, no, oops, it just happened. Sometimes like it happens now that, you know, on there are unplanned and unwanted pregnancies. But women weren't dummies. They cared about these things. So again, I mentioned I wanted to search the archives for examples of doctors in Joseph Smith's time that were using these herbs. And I wanted to know how hard it was to find. And it was ridiculously easy. My very first search brought up a medical advertisement in, Nau- in the Nauvoo neighbor 
in uh, on January 9th, 1845. And it caught my eye because one of my favorite herbalists who later becomes a prolific Thomasonian doctor in Utah, his name is Pretty Meeks. And I talk often about my best friend Malia on here. And Malia is a direct descendant of Pretty Meeks. So we've known about him forever. I've read his journals. Um, I've researched his life. And I, you know, Pretty Meeks is such a fascinating Thomasonian doctor. He was very well respected. But he was practicing in Navio as well. And here is the advertisement and see if you can if you can pick up on the clues. Quote, P. Meeks respectfully informs the citizens of Nauvoo vicinity that he intends keeping an assortment of the best Indian remedies now known, especially vegetable, which he digs from the earth himself, having knowledge and experience in the Indian practice of medicine for many years. He can with confidence recommend specifics for any pulmonary complaints from the consumption to the highest coughs and a certain route which entirely cures the og cake or enlargement of the spleen, also a root which is sovereign remedy for the cramp. Likewise, the same kinds of root which the squaws used to facilitate births, and then this is the next part is marked is crossed out. Um, also a remedy which acts specifically on the kidneys, readers, and urinary organs to ease pains and allay inflammation and, and cleanse the blank, I think it's bowels, and cause to flow free and clear and effectually cure the toothache without extracting the tooth. Also a certain remedy for the piles. He also has on hand vegetable snuff, which will in most cases relieve the headache by opening the head and and let the obstructions pass out by the nose. Also roots, which is specific remedy for the breast complaint or weakness in the breast, and also the liver complaint, also all blank obstructions and weaknesses. Finally, he intends with spring opens to collect Indian roots and herbs, a sufficient quantity and quality to meet with success and complaint that is subject to this country, either in male or female. Resident on Rich Street, half a mile northeast of the temple at the southeast corner of Hiram Kimball's farm. Nauvoo neighbor, January 9th, 1845. So if you're paying attention, it's interesting that the the most recent copies have blanked out what the uses were for, but Pretty is advertising for squaw root, which was a common contraceptive and abortive. And Pretty uses this often. And when he's talking about learning about these herbs from Indians, he means that the local doctors had been using First Nation medicines for a while. Um, Again, I've gone over some of these cohash azul, blue cohash, squaw root. Um, which they put in tea and tea capsules. And it was toxic to the fetus and would induce uterine contractions. So again, it's not just John C. Bennett doing all the abortions. All these doctors in Avu were there. And by this time, Joseph Smith is surrounded by herbalists and Thomasonian doctors using these abortives. Willard Richards, his brother Levi, Pretty Meeks, and all those others I mentioned. And that's not even the multitude of midwives that were there who also had access and knew how to use these plants and roots. And it just continues into the Utah period. In fact, you know, I talked about castor oil earlier. Joseph Young was a big advocate. He wanted large portions of farms in Utah to dedicate their crops in 1874 to growing castor oil because, you know, castor oil was also a contraceptive, not just an abortive. Castor oil contains a toxin called ricin, which is a protein that we know is very poisonous, which if administered in low dosages acts like a spermicide. Um, it can stop sperm from, you know, getting into the uterus. So searching for it in very quickly on my part was like shooting fish in a barrel, but you have to know what barrels to look in. And so hopefully this episode will give researchers some more clues and information when you're excavating the history. So check out the links. But until then, my dear listeners, thanks for making it this far. And I hope you enjoy this really incredible interview with Amanda Hendricks-Kumoto. my 
I'm so excited to bring back a, a friend and colleague mentor, I would call you, Amanda <laughs> Hendricks Komodo. Can you say hello? Hi, how are you doing? Good. So you were on your polygamy, right? When we were talking about... A long time ago, I think about the Pacific Islands. Yeah, it's so cool. It's so cool to have you back. Um, and we can talk more about what you do. You're the assistant professor at history at Montana State University. Actually associate now. I have tenure. So uh, they promote oh. you to associate when you get tenure. Congratulations. She is Thanks. associate professor of history <laughs> at Montana State University. Such a cool place. You're you're doing such interesting work. Um why don't you tell us about your book, Imperial Zions, really quick? That's not the topic of what we're talking about today, but it kind of ties into our older episode. Yeah. So I just published last October a book called Imperial Zions, which was based on my dissertation and examined Mormon missionary work among Native Americans and Polynesians. And the animating question behind it was how Mormon ideas about sex and family shaped their missionary work and the experiences of indigenous people who converted to Mormonism. So it explored the church in Hawaii. Uh, briefly, there's a chapter on Tahiti and um, the French Pacific or French Polynesia. And then it comes back to Utah and Idaho and looks at the experience mainly of the Northwestern Shoshone. Um, and so that was really a book about the intersections of race, sexuality, and the family in the American West um, as it related to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. One of the things I really like about Amanda's work is she's doing research in corners of Mormonism that are important, but sort of undiscovered. Like uh, Polynesia, there's not enough. I mean, do you want to shout out to any of your colleagues, any good scholars that you think are doing similar work? Yeah, I think the most influential book has been um, Hukulani Akaos. And I'm going to say the name. I might get it slightly wrong because this is from memory, but I believe it's a promised land, a promised people. And she looks, she's grew up in a, from a Mormon background, and she explores sort of the meanings of the church in Hawaii, how Native Hawaiian saints think about the church. And her work is really coming from a tension that she felt from the time that she was a young woman between the ways in which Latter-day Saints talk about Native Hawaiians and Polynesians as being a chosen people, and then the racism that she experienced growing up among Latter-day Saints and the pain that she felt around that. And so her work comes from this really personal place and I think is some of the best sort of current scholarship that people have done. Um, Lainey Bridge is done probably the most extensive survey of the history of the church in the Pacific Islands. He has a book that explores the history of the church there from the earliest sort of missionary work to almost the present and has done similar work in the Hawaiian islands. And then more recently, um, Charlotte Hanson Terry is working on a history of the church in Polynesia surrounding the adoption of Polynesian children into white Mormon families and thinking about the politics of family as it concerns the church. Oh, I'm excited about that. That's cool. Uh, well, thanks for coming on today. We're going to talk about something a little bit different. I was really excited when I realized that you were digging into the history of Mormon abortions. And on your polygamy, we've talked about a little bit. I talked to a former FLDS member, um, Faith Amelia, who is on one of our recent episodes about the, the issue of abortion. She's, you know, very pro uh, choice. Yeah. And it's, it's an issue that comes up constantly 
within our discourse, even though we don't realize that we're talking about it. And that's what the interview with Faith made me realize. There's Mm -hmm. this question of the history. I think most often I hear the term abortion discussed when we're talking about Joseph Smith's plural wives. Did he or didn't he? Is this Does this answer the progeny question? Is this why Joseph Smith doesn't have, you know, any living progeny that we know about? Did John C. Bennett give abortions? But we don't really talk about it after that. That's really the only context that I think you can even say the word. And growing up as a faithful Mormon in Utah, like, it's almost a swear word. Abortion is a dirty words. <laughs> and so uh, I really wanted to talk to you today about your research. So let's get into that. But um, why don't you tell us like how you got on this topic? Yeah. So unlike, I guess, most people, I I find it very hard to get interested in the history of Joseph Smith. And so my interest in the history of Mormon abortion had nothing to do with him. It really came out of a frustration with hearing contemporary Latter-day Saints in Utah and Idaho and just the Mormon cultural region in general talk about abortion as though all people in all times had always agreed that abortion was wrong and that it had sort of been self-evident from the beginning. And whenever I heard them talking about the history of abortion, I got really frustrated because I went to the University of Michigan, which has a long-standing women's studies program that was one of the first in the nation. And as a result of that, there's a long history of women's history and feminism at the University of Michigan. And so I had a lot of friends who are working on the history of reproduction and sex. And I knew that ideas about abortion and sexuality and the family had changed radically over time, and that it was highly unlikely that Latter-day Saints hadn't also seen these changes. And I wanted to bring what my friends were working on into conversation with what was going on in Mormon studies. And I was really frustrated with how little Mormon historians in general engaged with women's history or the types of analysis that people were doing. And so I started digging in to the history of abortion within Mormonism out of a deep frustration with the way that people in the present were talking about the subject. So while we're at it, why don't we define the terms a little bit? Because, you know, there's a large Mormon audience that listens to this podcast. And we are so illiterate when it comes to talking about this. I mean, I've been very open about this on the podcast. I've had an abortion, but I didn't know it was an abortion until I saw it on the form. I had an ectopic pregnancy. I was married. I had wanted the baby. Uh, Turns out, you know, it was an ectopic pregnancy. And so I had a procedure, I would have called it a procedure um, until I see it on the form and it's called abortion. And I'm like, what? And it throws me into this crisis of like, mm-hmm. I can have the procedure, but I can't have an abortion, you know, even though there's no hope of this, you know, tissue turning into a, a fetus or a baby or, and if it did, it would kill me. <laughs> yeah. I, it was the word that gave me so much dread. So why don't you Tell me when you, what what we're talking about when we're saying abortion. Yeah, and I that's a really important starting space because the words abortion and the word miscarriage have had different meanings over time. And so what we talk about when we talk about abortion is different than what people in 19th century meant when they talked about abortion. And the distinction that we make between miscarriage and abortion isn't one that would have held through over time. So I guess I'll start by talking about what people before the mid-19th century, how they thought about pregnancy and how that relates to the idea of abortion. Because for people in the past, even the term pregnancy 
had a different meaning than it did today in some ways. So before the mid-19th century, when we think about women and how they would have understood their own bodies, pregnancy is a really sort of indeterminate, mushy state. It's hard to say exactly when it begins and when it um, sort of can be distinguished from other things that might make your period or uh, menses stop, to use the more academic term. Women in the 19th century, 18th century, 17th century may or may not have had regular periods. There's a lot of things that can stop your period, overwork, not enough nutrition, a variety of medical conditions. And if you're a woman in the 19th century, it wouldn't have been entirely clear to you why your menstrual cycle had stopped or why you weren't getting a regular period. It may have been that you were pregnant, or it may have been that you didn't have enough food and weren't getting enough nutrients and your body was trying to conserve energy by stopping you from menstruating um, and was trying to actually protect your health by ending your period. And so for women who um, were alive before the 19th century, for them, the beginning stages of pregnancy were really unclear. They knew that their period had stopped, but they weren't exactly sure why. And so if you think about what moment you would actually know for sure that you were going to be having a baby in the 19th century, 18th century, it's often what we would now consider maybe like the second trimester around quickening when you actually felt the fetus move. And that is the moment actually that a lot of people from a variety of religious backgrounds would have identified as the moment that the soul enters the fetus is at quickening when the baby moves. And in fact, that's where Brigham Young in a this an essay or a speech in the Journal of Discourses says that the, the spirit actually enters the fetus. And in the early Republic, that's the point at which most people would make a distinction and say that ending a pregnancy is what we would now call an abortion. Before then, women believed that it was perfectly permissible to use a wide variety of methods to what they called restore their menses or bring back their period. They had herbal tea recipes that they could use to restore the menses. There were pills you could buy. There were a variety of folk remedies. And in some cases, this would have been inducing what we consider an abortion. In another case, it would have been trying to counteract the effects of anemia or trying to counteract the effects of overwork. And so a woman wouldn't have had a way to differentiate between those two things. And it actually wouldn't have occurred to her to do so because she wouldn't have sort of fully known that she was pregnant or that um, she was aborting a fetus. She would have just seen it as sort of counteracting her stopped menses and then trying to bring them back. And I know for even me, it's really hard to put myself back in that space because the way that I think of pregnancy is completely shaped by ultrasounds, by uh, pregnancy tests. And by, you know, the images that we see of the fetus and the womb in the early stages of pregnancy. And so it's really hard to put ourselves back in that space. But it's also really important to do if we are going to understand what was going on for women in the early 19th century. I really appreciate that. I, I also think I, I have a question about this because th this is what bothers me when we talk about the abortion discussion in, say, Joseph Smith's lifetime, as if women were idiots and didn't know how to take care of their bodies. I mean, it, it's, 
I grew up in a community that did not, I did not have sex ed. I was opted out personally. My mom got to sign a paper and I got to watch Free Willy, the movie, instead of getting, you know, sex education. And we didn't talk about it. And yet I found out ways to learn just like, so the most repressed, you know, that we have probably in America, I probably grew up with a similar background, you know, I didn't have access to a lot of the the resources. And yet I learned something. And then, you know, I've gone in very isolated communities that don't even have media. And in some ways, they're even better about these things, because they pay attention to the rhythms of their bodies. So talk to me about why a woman in the 19th century might get an abortion. Yeah, well, I first want to say, you and I have very similar sex ed experiences. My sex ed was taught by a Mormon bishop. And quite famously, he told us that having sex was like taking drugs. Um, It felt good at the time, but then you felt really bad about it afterwards. And that was the extent of my sex ed. Uh, We also watched a video that was horrifying that included like images of women giving birth. But I think So one of the things to understand is that abortion is women's work and women's reproductive health care is women's work in the 19th century Um, and in the 18th century. Most women um, would have had their reproductive health care taken care of by midwives, and they would have learned about their health care and how to regulate their own bodies from their mothers, their sisters, from the midwives in town, um, from older women. And women often had recipes that had been passed down from generation to generation. One sort of humorous story that I heard from a grad student of mine was her grandmother had grown up on the Wyoming frontier and she had a recipe that she knew and had learned from her family of uh, how to make something called a pessary. And I'm not actually sure that I am pronouncing that correctly. And we can thank my sex ed teacher, the Mormon bishop, Mr. Daly, for that. But a pessary is a thing that you insert into your vagina as a form of birth control that has, it acts partially as a barrier method to prevent the sperm from going through, but also contains things, different herbs and and substances to kill the sperm. And so she was making some um, at her house and a traveling salesman, according to the family story, stopped by and thought that she was making brownies. And before she could stop him, uh, he picked up one of the pessaries, which was like thick and uh, I think contained molasses as well as some other things and just plopped it into his mouth and started chewing. And I'm sure... It was absolutely disgusting, but he was too polite to say anything. And so just ate the entire thing. Um, (laughs) But this is the way that, that a lot of women would have learned about sex. I think your Uh, bishop was right. You you know, (laughs) seems good at the time, but you'll soon regret it. That's right. That's very brownies are another form of regret. Uh, But I think women learned about their bodies and, and how to control sexuality and how to restore their menses from other women. And so that if women were going to have an abortion in Nauvoo is how the vast majority of them would have dealt with it. They wouldn't have waited until they needed John C. Bennett um, to give them what sounds like a horrifying procedure. They would have dealt with it much earlier by taking an herbal tea uh, to prevent the conception from ever, ever happening. Or if their menses stopped, they would have had other methods to control their sexuality and their reproduction. And so that's the vast uh, majority of ways in which people 
would have dealt with their own sexuality. So one really interesting example actually comes from Heber C. Kimball in a speech that he gave in Utah. And he talks about what he believed it's about sexuality and abortion before he had converted to the church. And so he's talking about what he used to do. And he says in the speech, quote, I have been taught it and my wife was taught it in our young days when she got into the family way to send for a doctor and get rid of the child so as to live with me to gratify lust. It is God's truth and I know the person that did it. This is depopulating the human species and the curse of God will come upon that man and upon that woman and upon those cursed doctors. There is scarcely one of them that is free from this sin. It is just as common as it is for wheat to grow, end quote. And obviously by the time he's giving this speech, he is anti-abortion, but he is suggesting that earlier on when he was a young man, that he believed that it was normal to do this, that it was just as common as it was for wheat to grow and that this is what people did was to manage their own sexuality. There is some debate about that section and whether or not it actually says that Heber C. Kimball's wife, Philate, had an abortion. But one of the things I think it does suggest, whether or not she did, there were other women in the Mormon community, just by the sheer number of people who are having abortions and the sheer number of women who are converted, who had had that type of abortion, who had restored their menses. And there's a probably just by sheer numbers, one of them who was married to a Mormon leader. People didn't necessarily write down what they were doing as far as taking their herbal teas or restoring their menses, just as I don't write down every day that I've taken my Vyvanse or Adderall. But we know that women did it and lots of them did it. And thus it stands to reason that there were early Mormon women who did it, possibly even leaders of the church. It sounds like Heber Kimball and Valate Kimball got sex ed from some traveling man in the (laughs) town. I'm hearing that story and I'm like, that's why Heber Kimball's ideas on sexuality were so messed up, you know? I mean, I don't know about you, but I learned about sex like from the bus and from reading Flowers in the Attic. So he and I received the same type of sex. That's true. That is true. We did find a a dirty mag on the school playground (laughs) one time. This is kind of kind of like that. That's so funny. That's a great quote. Yeah. So why don't you bring us into more of the 19th century stuff? Um, This is so good. Let's kind of maybe go in chronological order for people. Yeah. So what begins to change? So this is how sort of sex and abortion work for much of the 19th century. It's something that women do, that women manage, and that is generally acceptable, although you will throughout the 19th and 18th century find people arguing that people need to have more children, um, that women should be willing to have as many children as possible. So there's always some debate about it. But what changes is in the 1850s, the American Medical Association is trying to develop um, obstetrics as a separate form of medicine and to claim control over reproduction. And so this is when you begin to see the women's healthcare moving away from midwives and being placed in the realm of male doctors. And so in 1857, the American Medical Association begins a letter writing campaign in which they're trying to convince state legislatures that first, abortion is dangerous because um, if you take too much abortifacet, not surprisingly, you can get sick. And so it's unregulated. And there are instances in which women thought they were taking one substance, it turned out to be another, and then the woman gets sick 
it dies of poisoning, basically. Um, so we don't want to overly romanticize this. Um, I always tell my students when I teach this now, because of the restrictions on abortion, that there are safer ways to have an abortion than to take a whole bunch of Penny Royale. And that I don't want to see them sort of using the notes they're taking from my class to try to manage their own sexuality. I hate so, that you even say that, but it it is true. And this is this is the abortion debate, right? The crux of it yeah. is people are going to do it. And there's some pretty dangerous, horrific ways to do it. And uh, there are also safe ways to do it. And if you Google, you can find some of those safe ways pretty easily. And so no one should be trying to do it alone at home, I will say, just as a matter of advocacy. Um, reach out. There are people who will help you. But the American Medical Association, and this does have direct correlations with today, is fairly successful at convincing people that abortion needs to be regulated. And they also, interestingly, begin to move back the understanding of when uh, life begins and begin to argue that life begins at conception. And one of the things that's important to point out is this isn't necessarily the result of new medical knowledge. They have been dissecting cadavers and they do know some things about uteruses and fetuses within them, but they're not making this argument because they suddenly had a scientific discovery. They're making it as a political argument to discredit midwives. And as a result of these letters that they've been writing to state and territorial legislatures, they're fairly effective at changing the conversation. 40 laws are passed um, after 1857, state laws outlawing abortion. Utah passes its law outlawing abortion in 1867. So about a decade after the American Medical Association began to try to outlaw abortion. And it's actually after the American Medical Association begins its letter writing campaign that you begin to see the rhetoric heat up in the Journal of Discourses about abortion and leaders of the church beginning to rail against it and talk about why they think that abortion is wrong. And so from everything I've seen, the Latter-day Saints are following the general American trend and responding to it. Um, they're not actually outside of anything that's going on in the United States. And so John Taylor uh, begins to call people who have abortions murderers and murderesses of their infants, uh, to use a quote. Brigham Young begins to talk about destroying and drying up the fountains of life. Interestingly, Kimball says that he doesn't consider abortion to be the same as infanticide. Um, and so he's much more cautious about his rhetoric. Um, but really that heating up of rhetoric comes as a result of the American Medical Association. and isn't sort of, at least in my point of view, the result of a revelation that they've received. In the meantime, do we know what the women are saying? Are they writing about this? Uh, like midwives, can we talk about Petty Sessions a little bit? I know you've talked about her on social media a little bit. Tell us what um, you know. I So I'm going to a caution. I haven't been able to find extensive lists of what Mormon midwives would have had in their medical kits. So I don't know for sure whether or not Patty Sessions performed any early abortions or gave anybody a tea to, to restore their menses. What I do know is that many of these Mormon midwives did have what's called an amenagogue. And an amenagogue basically works to stimulate um, contractions in the uterus, which can be used to make a pregnancy and or to make labor come quicker. And so one example, although watermelon is not an amenagogue, is there's an old wives tale that if you eat a whole watermelon at the end of your pregnancy, you will go into labor. And the reason for that is, is it gives you cramps, which can start labor if you're ready, but won't if you're not. 
I do not recommend eating a whole watermelon during the last days of your pregnancy. But that's sort of the general idea is that if you have something that can quicken labor, it can also be used to then cause a abortion to happen because it'll cause the uterus to expel its contents, whether or not that's a, a fetus or a child who's about to be born. And so Patty Sessions would have had those amenagogues probably in her doctor's kit, although I don't have a list of what she carried. I- I know that women have been using castor oil. That's one that I've seen. And it's interesting because that one was actually suggested to me when I was in my little ward out into Stansbury Park. You know, they women would say castor oil will bring on your labor. It also prevents you from getting pregnant. And so that idea has carried over. And the idea that castor oil prevents you from getting pregnant, what they're really saying is it's like the morning after pill, right? Like, yeah, basically. I mean, I haven't taken castor oil. That Don't sounds it horrible. That sounds awful. But exactly, like if it is going to make you go into labor, if you take enough of it, and that's the, the key there, it could also, depending on, it could also give you cramps. I don't want to say that it will cause an abortion, uh, but the reason they're saying that is it's going to cause some cramping. And actually- I take castor oil for labor. Someone's going to be mad I said this, but I did. <laughs> I listened to my, you know, hippie Mormon neighbors who- did everything natural and I tried it and it just made me really sick. So I was, I did try eating the whole watermelon. I also did not feel well afterwards. It was a mistake. Uh, Also, I did not go into labor. The more fun one, and this may bring the rating up to PG-13, is uh, lots of people recommend having sex as a way to start labor. But I also don't know that that actually is going to do much for you. One thing that we do know as far as how women were thinking about it at the time is you can sort of read against the grain. There's a lot of early Mormon female doctors. Uh, For example, Hannah Sorensen, who's, uh, I think she's from one of the Scandinavian countries, I believe. She comes over and has actually been trained um, in Europe, I believe, as a midwife. And she writes extensive lectures and then a book that she publishes for women in Utah about how they should treat their bodies in order to prepare for pregnancy. And one of the things that she does is she castigates how many women she's met in Utah who believe that it's not a crime to have uh, to restore their menses or have what we would call an early abortion. So we actually don't have any records from women talking about taking um, something to restore their menses. But we have a lot of women who have railed against it. And who have said that they met women who did. The other thing that we know is that Reed Smoot, member of the Quorum of Apostles eventually, uh, senator famously who tries to be unseated, at his pharmacy in Provo, he sells uh, what we would call abortion pills. And he advertises for them quite frequently in the local Provo newspaper. There's actually an article on The Exponent 2 that talks about the history of abortion in Utah. And one of the things that the blogger, who goes by the name M, and I'm not actually sure who that is, what their actual name is, I just know their pen name. She points out that if you have a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles selling abortion pills, if you're a Mormon woman, you would sort of assume that if a member of the Quorum of Apostles or Twelve Apostles is selling it to you, that it's okay and that the church, at least he approves and he's the representative of the church for you. So we know that they're being sold in Utah. We know that a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles is selling them. We know that there are Mormon female doctors railing against how frequently women in Utah believe that abortion 
in their sort of early weeks of pregnancy is okay. What we don't have, unfortunately, is an actual person talking about doing it. So there's lots of circumstantial evidence, but nothing that tells us for sure where we can point to and say it was her. But then again, like, I wouldn't necessarily expect to find that. It's really hard to find examples of women talking about regulating their sexuality on a day-to-day basis. Again, we still have the patina of time and we've gone through the 70s, 80s, and 90s where there have been deliberate campaigns to sort of change the meanings of these words too because to me it's like every everything else in mormonism it really depends on the local people in your area your local bishop the women around you and what you call it because in my experience which happened in the i would say gosh 2010 i was talking about these things with women and we were never saying the word abortion because now abortion meant baby killer and none of us were baby killers. But we were all talking about managing our bodies and our pregnancies and all of these things and giving these tips like the castor oil tip, uh, talking about birth control, ways to prevent getting pregnant. And there was diversity within the women of, you know, some thought you shouldn't do that. And some of us thought that, oh, those their old fashioned. I imagine it was the same thing always for women. Some women have, you know, certain ideas about morality and about their bodies and about family planning and other women don't. Some think that you should just have many, many kids and other women know it's hard or maybe women saw their mothers die in childbirth and they didn't want to go through that. I mean, there's there's just so much diversity. It's the words now that have such a stigma. So it's possible that this guy selling this pill he wouldn't have looked at it as baby killing. He would have looked at it as responsible family planning, which is in line with a lot of Mormon doctrine through many interpretations. Well, and possibly that he was also helping this young woman who, if she was not married or she already had five or six kids, her life could have been made substantially worse by having another child. We have lots and lots of letters from non-Mormons that were sent to various advocates of birth control, including Margaret Sanger, begging for information on how to prevent pregnancy and how to prevent themselves from having another child and just describing the absolute poverty that they were experiencing and the toll that it was having on their bodies. And so there were women who were desperately seeking out that information on what they they could do to prevent pregnancy. I do want to say one possible source of information that women had, and this actually came up for me when I first searched for abortion in 19th century Utah newspapers. If you do that, you'll come up with two things. One is people talking about political abortions, which basically just means fraud. The other thing you'll come up with is an ungodly number of articles on how to prevent your sheep from having a miscarriage. And the reason why that always stuck out to me is I learned about sex on the school bus. I learned about it from reading Flowers in the Attic, which is a great book that uh, anybody who hasn't read it should read. And then I should say it's really scandalous. It's also about like incest and is a gothic novel, uh, but everybody at my middle school loved it. But the other place, right, is I grew up in rural Idaho. I learned about it from animals that were on my grandfather's ranch, right? I saw cows have sex with each other. And a lot of women and men would have learned about sex and reproduction from watching their cows and sheep have sex and reproduce. And if you read those agricultural articles against the grain, it'll tell you what not to do if you don't want your cow or your sheep to have a miscarriage. And 
it's very easy to imagine that there were some women who in a desperate situation might think if this is a way that would produce a miscarriage in a cow or in a sheep, it might work for me too. We do have some absolutely horrific stories of what some women went through because they were denied an ability after those laws started being passed, after things became more regulated, were denied the ability to have a safe abortion. And one that came to mind as you were talking um, is a story that appears in a woman named Annie Pike Greenwood's memoir. She lived in rural Idaho near Twin Falls. Her aunt had been married to one of Brigham Young's, I believe, nephews, um, and then had divorced him. And then her father had left the the church. Um, And so Annie Pike Greenwood grew up as a non-Mormon in Provo, but she wrote a really honest memoir, although she explicitly does not call it that, about life in rural Idaho. And she has an entire section on birth and death. And one of the stories she tells is about a girl she calls Tilly Bierbach, who ended up pregnant. And we don't know if Tilly Bierbach was Mormon. There were a lot of Mormons in town, but Annie Pike Greenwood never specifies anybody's faith. So it's possible um, that she is. It's possible she wasn't, um, but she's growing up in a heavily Mormon community. And she got pregnant. And then one day, a man heard her in, quote, terrible agony, uh, end quote, in her, quote, married sister's shack, end quote. And then he sees her run out um, towards what he calls, or Annie Pike Greenwood calls the big Mormon gate. um, And then she sort of collapses. And when he comes up to her, he's pretty sure she's dead. So he picks her up, uh, carries her back to her sister's house. And what he finds inside is a syringe and then a bottle of carbolic acid, um, which everybody in town sort of realizes she had been using to try to induce an abortion. Um, he then, according to Annie Pike Greenwood, leaves her there to go get the doctor. And Annie Pike Greenwood describes her as being just sort of left, quote, alone in the shack, mud on her face and in her hair until the doctor arrived, end quote. They then discover that a man named Hen Beckstead, and I don't know if these are real names or not, um, had bought the carbolic acid the day before, never prosecuted for her death. And Greenwood explains it saying, quote, I heard the farmer saying she had it coming to her. She was so hot after Hen. Nobody blamed him for Tilly's death. You see, he had not meant to kill her. He had only meant to murder the unborn child. It would have seen the light in a few months, end quote. And when Annie Pike Greenwood first published it in the 1930s, 1934, everybody thought that she had sort of made it up and that it was too scandalous. And more recently, historians of Idaho, who are really the only people who read Annie Pike Greenwood, um, have sort of said that her writing in this chapter does reflect the experiences of what it would have been like in Hagerman, Idaho, near Twin Falls, and that she is sort of telling the truth of what happened, whether or not that happened to a woman named Tilly Bierbach, or if she changed the name and some of the circumstances to protect the family is uncertain. But we do know that there were women who sort of desperately searched for carbolic acid and were willing to inject it in themselves and then died in horrible agony because they weren't able to have a safe abortion or had lost the knowledge because of the campaign to end birth control and abortion had lost the knowledge of sort of how to control their own sexuality. And it ended up in a really desperate, terrible situation. That's a really tragic story and probably more common than we realize. You know, it's making me think and I'm I'm going to give a trigger warning to the, the guests really quick that I'm going to talk about sexual abuse for a minute. So if you need to skip the next few minutes, go ahead and do that. One of the other things I I don't think we talk enough about in this context, especially in Mormon history, is the rates of high sexual abuse and sexual assault in our community, which often for the victims, the the female victims, results in pregnancy. And, you know, I'm going to be talking about this in Juanita's book. She 
Juanita, if she saw, you know, episodes of sex abuse, that's one thing that Juanita actually took out of her, of um, the histories, because it was just something you didn't talk about. And this is another big factor. Think about abuse that happens in our communities now. It's always been going on. And in these communities where you're being, you know, uh, molested by a stepfather or your own father or your brother, and it results in a pregnancy, there are high stakes for that. Um, and so this is another thing that we don't talk about with why these women would want to do it. It wasn't just because, you know, hearing this story about Tilly, how they call it, she was hot for the hen or something. Is that what they said? Yeah, his name is Hen, which is a little bit, yeah. Oh, so, you know, it's just her promiscuity is to blame or whatever, but we don't think about a lot of these dire situations are women who didn't want to be having sexual encounters in the first place. And so the need for that is something that if you were a pharmacist and you knew that abuse happened. It's a kindness to to have some of these medicines around you because you know how cruel it is to have a victim have to give birth to the child of her rapist or something. So I think that those discussions aren't talked about enough either. We want to think about it as like either secret polygamy or selfish women. And there is just a whole litany of reasons why people don't want to get pregnant. Well, and what's interesting about Annie Pike Greenwood's book, and it's called We We Sagebrush Folks, I should say, is in the chapter on birth, she does talk about incest and girls who were abused by their, their fathers and stepfathers. And one of the things she points out is in a small rural community, they had nowhere to escape and everybody knew about it, but did nothing. And she says quite often the women who were being physically abused or sexually abused would slowly go insane because they had nowhere to go and no one to turn to. I actually find her book amazing. Partially just, I never would have expected somebody in 1934 to publish that and to openly say what was going on in the community that she lived in. Well, thanks for that. I'll link that. What other thoughts do you have? Talked about 19th century and 20th century. What about modern day stuff? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that has been sort of horrifying and really sad as a women's historian is to watch the stuff that you've taught about for years suddenly become more relevant than ever. It has at once made everything I do seem politically pressing, but it's also made it really depressing, especially how afraid many of my students are um, about their own lives and prospects and what might happen to them if they were to accidentally uh, or even purposely get pregnant. I don't know many women who have had abortions who have talked to me about them, but the ones that I do, many of them wanted their children and had them because either their life was on the line because there was some sort of complication or because they discovered they were carrying a child with a severe disability that was not compatible with life, I think is the way that it's usually put. But as you know, uh, recently, the Dobbs decision overturned Roe versus Wade, which had been made on a privacy argument, the idea that medications that are available to women who aren't pregnant or who are in labor also need to be made available to women no matter what reason they want them. And then it's not anybody's business why they want to use that particular medicine. So after that decision, a lot of states had to deal with sort of what their laws around abortion were going to be. And in some cases, like I believe Michigan, uh, they had 
old laws that had predated Roe that were suddenly sort of looming and were going to come back into effect. And other states had passed what were called trigger laws, where abortion would be made illegal as soon as Roe was overturned. And so those were suddenly on the table. And then in other states, like Montana, actually, there's been a lot of debates about uh, abortion. But in Montana, our constitution was actually rewritten in the 1970s. And so we have an explicit right to privacy. And so far, abortion has been protected under that right to privacy within the state of Montana. But the ways in which it intersects with the history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints most heavily are in Utah and Idaho, um, where there's a heavy Latter-day Saint population and a lot of debates going on about abortion in those two states. The one that hits me most directly, just because I grew up in, I was born in Pocatello and grew up in Blackfoot, is is Idaho. And actually, the debates about abortion in both states predate um, Roe being overturned. And I think one of the most interesting cases that I'm surprised that people in in Mormon studies don't talk about more often is a woman named uh, Jenny Lynn McCormick, who was from Pocatello um, and was arrested in 2010, which is obviously before Roe was overturned uh, for self-inducing an abortion. And I think it might be interesting to start with her case and then to talk about um, the ways in which Idaho and Utah have litigated afterwards. But Jenny Lynn McCormick's case was seen as a test case about how far the state could go in prosecuting abortions, because the argument, even in the 19th century, had been that women would never be prosecuted, that this was a crime for the people who had actually done the abortion uh, at doctors or the person who had prescribed the pills and not for the individual woman. So Jenny Lynn McCormick uh, was actually, or is, she's still alive. She's not that old, actually. She's probably in her early 40s, like I am. She was born in Pocatello um, or raised in Pocatello. I don't know if she was born there. She's a Latter-day Saint. And she, in the 2000s, had had several children. And in 2010, discovered that she was pregnant again. Um, she felt that she was financially unable to have another. And she wasn't married. And the father wasn't in the picture. And so she decided that the responsible thing for her to do as a mother was to have an abortion. From, gosh, I don't know when. When I was in high school, I once looked up to see where the nearest abortion clinic was. The answer in the 1990s was it's in Salt Lake City if you live in Pocatello. The answer in the 2000s, if you lived in Pocatello, was that it was in Salt Lake City. And so when Jenny Lynn McCormick looks it up in 2010, that's still the case. The nearest abortion that you can have if you live in Pocatello is to drive to Salt Lake City, which is about two and a half hours, assuming there's not traffic. She is very much working class and can't afford that. And she would have had to go because of Utah's abortion laws more than once in order to procure an abortion. And so she ends up ordering abortion pills, um, RU486. And when she takes the pills and has the abortion, she discovers that the fetus is further along than she thought. She thought she was less than nine weeks along, which is when you can take RU486. She discovered that she was as many as 20 weeks pregnant based on the development of the fetus. She panics. She doesn't know what to do. She hadn't intended to be that far along. She didn't know she was that far along. And so she ended up wrapping the fetus um, in some plastic bags that she had and then hiding it um, in the most sensationalized media stories um, underneath the hood of her barbecue. 
And then the local prosecutor arrests her for self-procuring an abortion, which was against Idaho state law at the time. And then she ends up uh, later on suing the state for prosecuting her. And the Supreme, the state Supreme Court and higher courts actually end up finding in her favor. She actually, throughout all of this, and that's where I find her story interesting, is throughout all of this, she had continues to attend her ward. But eventually, the people there are cruel enough to her that she ends up leaving the church because of the way she was treated after her abortion. And the reason I wanted to start with her story, even though I didn't set it up all that well, is I think it's a reminder that Latter-day Saints do have abortions, including ones that aren't for medical reasons for a variety of reasons. And some of them are because of poverty. Some of them are because of spousal abuse. And that they can still be believing Latter-day Saints, which shows the disconnect between what's going on nationally and in church headquarters and what's going on in the ground. I think the other thing it reminds us is that the stories that we hear about abortion restrictions didn't begin with the end of Roe, that they predated it. And this is a long-standing discussion in Idaho and Utah. I also it- want to point out one thing to that, too. It's a horrible story to think about. Um, 20 weeks old that that's that's so tragic to think about the the entire experience but before we go and blame abortions if this woman had had good access to health care we could have figured this out you know there it didn't have to go like it did and that's that's the main thing that turned around my mind on this issue was that the inevitability of this like people are not going to shame and stop women from getting these these procedures. It's going to happen. It will happen. You are not going to talk people out of it. It will happen. So for me, the most convincing thing was find the safest and most humane ways to do that. Um, And this story, I think, is a good example of that. Well, and if she had had a better support system, I mean, she is doing it because she feels compelled out of poverty. And there is times, according to the articles that I've read, and I can't find her now, I've searched, where she says she couldn't leave the house because people would stop and be so rude to her. And she had a three-year-old that she didn't want to take out in public with her because of how she was being treated. And I can understand why I can't find her, right? Who? I can't imagine that she actually wants to be found um, because this is a horrific story for her. And if she had had a better financial support um, or a better community report, lots of the story could have went differently. And it's always going to be the women on the margins who bear this the most. And one of the things that's true of Southeastern Idaho, and I don't know actually if this is true statistically, but a lot of Latter-day Saints in Southeastern Idaho are poor and they live in trailer parks and they aren't, you know, going every Sunday because they have to work on Sundays to support themselves. And those people are just as much Latter-day Saints as middle-class people who can, who have more options for healthcare and support systems and never have to make these decisions. I don't, this is kind of, I hope this isn't, you know, in poor taste, but thinking about the the idea of her taking the fetus and wrapping it in a barbecue sounds really morbid and horrific. And yeah, I've talked to a woman who um, had multiple miscarriages. I've, I've had multiple miscarriages. So I've been in the miscarriage Mormon community for a while. And I talked to a woman who once had a miscarriage and you know, she did the same thing. She took the fetus. She was so devastated. She couldn't let it go. It became sort of this traumatic thing for her and she ended up preserving it. I mean, so when we think about it and think it's weird, these are traumatic experiences. I'm sure this was not an easy thing for this woman to go through. And so the idea of her doing something that seems so strange when you're in that, 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 
panic of grief and, you know, like, oh no, what have I done? Um, I, I can imagine it makes your brain do some strange things. Well, and what, I don't even know what I would do in that situation because you can't necessarily have a proper, I, I can imagine not wanting to sort of face it and being unable to arrange for a burial, unable to look at what had happened and just sort of in frozen, paralyzed, uncertain, like what I should do. I, I can't imagine being in that situation. Um, and then to sort of be shunned by the city of Pocatello and the people that she had had viewed as her religious community because she can't turn to her bishop in this case. I mean, what's he, he's going to, he may counsel her correctly and help her through it, but I can't imagine trying to go to my bishop about it. The sheer authority he held would be too terrifying. Well, and again, it's this idea of like, you know, the woman I know, she had large support from her community. They knew about this. They knew about her miscarriage. And um, because it was a miscarriage, involuntary, um, she had the support, right? It's this idea that this woman somehow sinned and, you know, murdered her own child, blah, 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 all, all the stuff that we that we attach to it. And it's just so much more complicated than that. And again, I'm going to say anyone that's horrified by that story, abortion is inevitable. You are not going to stop it. You are not going to talk people out of it. You're not going to talk people in your family out of it. They're hiding secrets from you. This is more common and, uh, ubiquitous than people want to talk about. And uh, so what do we do with that? Do we just pretend that it's not happening and give ourselves some feel-good rhetoric around it? Or do we actually tackle the problem? And I believe that we tackle the problem and we find better, healthier ways to deal with it. Amen. Well, and we should say that Things have only gotten worse in Idaho um, and that we're going to see more instances like this because of the post-Roe laws. Um, so post-Roe in Idaho, abortion is now illegal, except in cases of incest, rape, and if the life of the mother is at stake. However, if the life of the mother is in danger, Idaho law now says that you cannot use, um, you cannot give the woman a traditional abortion and instead you have to do either induce labor or have a C-section to try to save the life of the fetus, um, which means that women's lives are going to be in danger because doctors can't perform the types of procedures that would be most life-saving. There was a study that said 48% of Idaho OBGYNs are planning to leave the state in the next year. Um, and then 27% said they were considering it. Um, and all of those people probably won't go, but we've already seen labor wards shut down throughout the state. And not all of them, just a few so far, but there may be more in the future so that women actually can't travel even to have a child because the labor and delivery ward they would have went to is now no more. And then we're going to see more pregnancies that are unplanned because the University of Idaho is interpreting the state laws to say that they can't actually distribute birth control. They can't talk about abortion. And the University of Idaho has decided to be legally safe. All they can do is hand out condoms. They can't say that condoms will prevent pregnancy. Um, instead, they're saying that you can use a condom to prevent STDs. And so without easy access to birth control, without easy access to um, other forms of reproductive care, you're going to see the number of women who are trying to have a self-induced abortion or who are getting pregnant and can't do anything about it um, just skyrocket within the states. It's pretty horrifying. I don't, and I don't know about Idaho, but I know in Utah, the incest and rape thing is used often. Like, it's fine. Like, women that are, you know, raped don't have to do it. To be able to prove that, to be able to get that service, you have to prove that it's a it's incest or rape, and it's a whole thing. And to ask some poor 
14 or 15 year old girl who was being molested by her stepfather to go turn him in and prove that I, I it, it just like it makes my head want to explode with rage like they don't understand what they're asking people assume that everyone must have the same resources that they do or would make the same choices that they do you don't have to like abortion don't get one but doing all of these things making all these hoops to jump through is is cruel it's it's torture it's torture to the fetus it's torture to the to the body carrying the fetus like uh, you're telling me about Idaho laws and I know them but it just makes me so angry because it's so counterproductive to this idea that we want to you know protect babies if you want to protect babies actually protect babies I I expect people who are out there talking about protecting babies to be fighting domestic violence in their communities to be fighting uh, better responsible use of alcohol which is the number one like contributor to domestic violence and child abuse. Like, I want to see you showing up in those corners too. And I'm sorry to get really preachy about it, but it just makes me so furious when the realities of women's lives are so much more complicated. And what I, I think these laws are barbaric. And I think that they cause an in- huge increase in human suffering. Like, like the poor girl that, that took the carbolic acid, right? Like, it's just such a waste. Yeah. It's well, so necessary. There are things that Idaho and people in Idaho could argue for. And and we'll talk about Utah briefly before we have to go. But one of the things that doesn't even touch on abortion really, but was really horrifying as these laws were going through, is Idaho also decided not to renew the funding for its maternal mortality task force. They were trying to document the number of women who died each year pregnant women, women in childbirth to see what they could do to improve maternal mortality. And so just as the OBs are leaving the state, just as it's becoming harder to access pregnancy care, they shut down the task force, which means we will never know how many women this affected and how many women ended up dying or being really sick or harmed in some way because they, they couldn't find an OBGYN and they were pregnant. And so one practical step would be to bring back the Idaho maternal mortality task force and to fund it so that Idaho actually has numbers on how many women are dying and why. And then in Utah, abortion is actually still legal. And that's important to emphasize is that if you are in Utah and you need an abortion for whatever reason, and I'm actually not completely comfortable with abortion, but I don't see it as my business to police anybody on this matter. There's enough gray that it's none of my business. Um, But if you need an abortion in Utah, it is legal for you to have one. The only abortion provider in the state right now is Planned Parenthood that I know of. And that is what I've sort of read is that they are the only ones left. They currently have an injunction at the state uh, level to allow abortion to continue in Utah. And they will be arguing again and again before the Supreme Court to keep it that way. Um, And so in Idaho, restoring a maternal mortality task force and in Utah, finding ways to support Planned Parenthood is the way to keep abortion and women's health on the table as something that needs to be discussed. I appreciate that because I was just going to ask, you know, when you feel like I do, it's like, how can I help? How can we fix this? So those are some of the ways we can do it. And I, I would say also just have conversations with people about this and and try to, like you said, I appreciate your reminder that it's not our job to police anybody about these things. This is such a hard thing, you know, and I I, I just wish there was more nuance in the discussions Especially because I think that in real life on the ground, people are more practical about it. It's just when we get into the political rhetoric that it becomes such a such a thing. 
Well, and I think it's also important to note this isn't going to end with abortion. I listened to the Supreme Court, the state Utah Supreme Court uh, discussions that happened in August 2023, which are available on YouTube if anybody wants to check them out. And the most horrifying thing was one of the female justices asked the state of Utah's lawyer, who was arguing that in terms of a woman's medical care, the state had to weigh the interests of the fetus against the interests of the mother. The female justice asked the lawyer, so if the state determined that it was in a fetus's best interest for the state to outlaw elective C-sections, would the state of Utah constitutionally be able to outlaw elective C-sections? And the lawyer, without thinking about it, said yes. And so no matter how you feel about abortion, it's not going to stop there. It also involves birth control. It involves C-sections. And the state of Utah has said they don't really have a limiting principle that would stop them from outlawing C-sections if they're elective. And that was terrifying because it means that the state of Utah thinks they have a constitutional right to outlaw all sorts of women's reproductive procedures, whether or not they actually lead to abortion or not. And that means women's bodies are no longer autonomous, that women don't have control over their bodies. And the state of Utah believes that they have the right to intervene. If you're someone listening from outside of Utah or Idaho, how can other people find resources? I imagine some women are going to find this when they're searching frantically online for help. What would you what would you say to folks like that? So it depends on where you live, but there are a bunch of organizations, and we can link to some of them, that are trying to organize across state lines to provide abortion access to women. These existed before Roe, and they continue to exist. Um, before Roe, they were mainly focused on women who couldn't afford to travel to get abortion care. Now um, they've expanded their focus to include women who are in states where abortion is illegal. And so finding and supporting those types of organizations is important because they are having their resources strained more than ever before. The other sort of way, if you are looking for information at the time, is that abortion pills, as of right now, there are conflicting constitutional decisions on that, but you can order them through the mail and receive them after filling out some forms and receiving some screening um, as well. And so there are ways to access abortion. It involves going to organizations that are looking at ways to um, help people find their ways across state lines, and then also organizations that are uh, providing abortion pills to women who are in states where abortion isn't legal. And in fact, interestingly, Jenny Lynn McCormick's lawyer, who is in Pocatello, I won't say his name, he's actually one of the people who has been working to ensure that abortion pills are available nationwide. And so he has not stopped advocating for women who need abortions and has continued that work and is now focusing it on medication abortion. And then the last thing you can always do is find your local women's clinic. Uh, make sure that it is not one that is trying to dissuade women from having an abortion. But here in Bozeman, it's Bridger Care is the name of our local women's clinic that sees women who are low income, refers them to where they need to go. There is one in every city and then Planned Parenthood always needs more support and resources. And so those are easy ones to find and to support and to funnel not only your money, but I've spent time just calling people and thanking people uh, that they gave me on a list who had donated money to Bridger Care. Um, and so they also need people just to fill out thank you cards or to uh, go through their paperwork and make sure it's in order. So it doesn't always have to be actual money. It can also just be your time. 
I appreciate that. And I imagine that a lot of listeners are going to be tuning in because the abortion discussion always sort of hooks them with the Joseph Smith progeny, you know, discussion. And we didn't talk a lot about that because like you said, it's, it's just such a small piece that's been talked about so much. Um, and I actually think all of this fits into that, but what would you tell those listeners, those who, you know, think about this topic to prove if Joseph Smith was a polygamist or not, or if he, you know, um, had sex with plural wives, would you have any thoughts for the conversation in that context? Yeah. I mean, I've read the John C. Bennett stuff. It's really sensational. I think it's William is his last name. Wheel by or W Y L talks about blood running through the rivers of Illinois because of Joseph Smith aborting, uh, the, fetuses of his pregnant wives, that's really sensationalized and it's really interesting, but that's not the way abortion worked in the 19th century. And we're looking in the wrong places. Um, I am positive that there was abortion in the early Mormon community, but it's not necessarily the sensationalized abortions that John C. Bennett is reputed to have performed. And he may well have performed a few of them. I've read the stuff from Hiram Smith. I don't really have strong feelings on whether or not he was telling women he could give them uh, herbal teas that would end a pregnancy no matter what the stage. Um, That's possible. It's also not the way that most abortions were being done. Um, Women were undoubtedly having abortions in the early Mormon community. Most of them were happening within what we would call the first trimester. Most of them were being overseen by sisters, mothers, daughters, uh, midwives, and involved herbal teas and pessaries and other forms of birth control and abortion care. And most of them were fairly routine and not really remarked upon. Um, And if we focus too much on Hiram Smith and John C. Bennett, we're missing the story of how women used to control their own reproductive decisions and their own birth control. I mean, quite honestly, it's possible that Joseph Smith had sex with two of his wives, 10. I don't know. Um, I also don't really find it all that compelling um, to try to figure out exactly how many women he slept with. It's more important sort of the ways in which those women thought about their relationships, thought about their sexuality, and then dealt with it themselves. It's possible that Joseph Smith was using some sort of birth control to keep his wives from being pregnant. But as Heber C. Kimball pointed out, it was as common as wheat. Uh, That's what women did. There's a book on post-revolutionary America on how women in Philadelphia in the early 18th century were controlling the number of children that they had to two or three um, as part of revolutionary fervor and were taking basically herbal teas for birth control. That's the real story, is that women have always controlled their reproduction. And is it possible that Joseph Smith didn't have any children because of his wives using birth control? Maybe, but that is the story of a lot of women in the 19th century. It's not unique. And if we make it a big sensational story, we also kind of suggest that those women shouldn't have been controlling their reproductive lives and that they should have borne Joseph Smith's children and that there was something wrong with them deciding they didn't want to do that. And I have just as many problems with that as I do with Joseph Smith's uh, sometimes untoward, I want to use a stronger word there, but I won't, behavior towards women. I think denying women their reproductive rights and suggesting they shouldn't have used birth control is just as problematic as Joseph Smith trying to control women's reproductive and sexual autonomy in his own problematic way. Well, that is very well said. Uh, Thank you so much. Do you have any other closing thoughts that you want to share? Um, Not off the top of my head. I mean, 
I just, I really hope that in the future, women can have more autonomy over their bodies. And right now I, I fear for my daughters and what happens if they have even a wanted pregnancy that doesn't go the way that they thought it would. Pregnancy is uncontrollable and things happen and I want them to be safe and to have the best reproductive health care, not to have it from somebody who is afraid and is thinking about leaving next week. Yeah, I want that. I want that for everyone. So yeah, I really appreciate your research. What about, uh, what are you going to do with this research? Where can people find you and find this? Yeah. um, So I've written an article for Dialogue um, about the history of abortion in Utah. I also wrote a short piece about motherhood um, and Mormon narratives around motherhood for The Revealer, which is a blog at NYU. Um, I included it in my reflections on the September 6th and the ways in which motherhood still feels compulsory for many Latter-day Saint women, or at least it's presented that way by Latter-day Saint leaders. And then the ultimate plans for this is after I finish a short biography of Ina Kulbrith, Joseph Smith's niece, and an important early California poet, to turn it into a short book because... I get a lot of requests to write about Mormons and reproduction, partially because as a non-Latter-day Saint, I can't be excommunicated for writing about it, so I feel less pressure not to. And I felt that enough of those requests have come in that I ought to turn it into a book because I already know the information and it seems like a lot of people want to know more. Yeah, we'll throw up a bunch of links on your polygamy dot com so you can find uh some of this stuff and anything else you want to say link promote talk about no although i am looking forward to your book on on juanita brooks so i'm excited for that to come out yeah thank you for being a champion of that uh soon 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 um okay amanda thanks so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule to to uh talk with us well and you as well um you've done a lot of great work and it's always a pleasure to talk with you All right, y'all. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope I hope you learned something new. Just want to say that we talked a lot about herbs that have potential real side effects. So we are not giving medical advice. So do not take this podcast as any form of medical advice. Do not use these herbs without the instruction of a licensed medical professional. Check the laws in your state. Um, if you're seeking treatment, check the laws in your state and reach out to Um, a medical professional who can help you. Even though these treatments have been used as folk remedies, that does not mean you should be taking matters into your own hands. There are still resources and people and folks and clinics out there that can help you get the right treatment under the guided care of people who are trained to help you to do this. So stay safe out there. I hope that those who are struggling with these issues can have the support that they need, more support than the women that we've talked about in the podcast. I hope that we can do history responsibly. And thanks again, always, always, always for supporting this podcast. The fact that I still have y'all listening to me is just so wild to me. I, You followed with me, you know, all these years, and I just feel like an immense amount of gratitude. I won't go into a testimony, friendimony meeting for y'all, but um, I do think about you. I do think about all those listeners out there who I don't even know. And, you know, you've had my voice in your head. And I want to be like, I'm so sorry. Uh, (laughs) I have my voice in my head. It's not pretty. 
but I, I really do appreciate it. I'm, I'm so glad to connect with you and I hope that it's, you know, a voice in the darkness because hopefully, you know, even though we might not know each other, you can feel my heart reaching out uh, to you through this work that's very important to me and, and it's so lovely to connect to you through work like this. So again, enjoy this beautiful fall time weather and we'll talk to you all soon. The song you just heard is called My Disguise by Mikkel Douse. Her album is available for purchase on iTunes or Apple Music. Thanks for listening.